Alas and the Creators Code ask the questions that need to be asked in a way that allows the full picture to be given with Smart Challenge. Today, we're speaking to a pioneer in disruptive technologies. He's a founding member of Edenbase and is built in areas like entertainment and marketing tech. One of his major achievements is creating a worldwide standard for digital rights management. This has greatly transformed how software and gaming industries operate. As a respected expert, he's given advice to the UK government and has spoken to top schools like UCL and Wharton Business School. So now let's dive in and welcome the man who's shaping the future, Mr. Daniel Dole Steinberg. Daniel, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Alice. Great to be here. Brilliant. Um, it would be great to start to give our viewers an overview of your background. You have a very comprehensive background. Where did you start and leading into Eden Base being the co-founder? What happened in between that? We'd love to listen to your story. Oh, great. So... My background is um, I'm a first-generation Brit. My mother's German. My father's Jewish, which has given me an interesting perspective on life, I, I guess. Um, and was educated in the UK, had a very uh, great upbringing. My parents were both entrepreneurial, uh, had a very good, stable life. Um, went to university to study electronic engineering and um, did that for three years. I'm not a great electronic engineer. In fact, when I graduated, one of my tutors said... Uh, we tried to draw the line above you. And the other one said, for God's sake, don't become an electronic engineer, go into sales or politics. And I ended up working just near the city in Old Street, which is now Silicon Roundabout, but it was not particularly nice back then, building early derivative trading tech, which really made me understand how disruption can occur in an industry. So you had these contracts, these derivative contracts that being coded in technology. And before technology, it was impossible to do these things. And very quickly, they solved enormous business problems within the financial and corporate industry and became a very, very big market very quickly. And now it's the biggest market in the world. And so I really understood that when you get products that really solve the needs of people using technology, you can have very fast hyper growth. I ended up moving to New York, uh, where I spent two years stopping one of the biggest banks in the world being shut down. I was a young guy, I was in my mid-20s. And that really taught me how difficult it is for, for corporates to adopt change internally. You know, Even when the future of the bank is at stake, they didn't want to change. I mean, simple changes were really difficult. And I spent two years working on this. Um, I was very good at it, and my tutor said, sales or politics. I was very good at that part of the business, trying to get people to change. And I left the bank after a couple of years and came back to the UK when I founded the co uh, company you mentioned, which is Tribeca, which changed the way that w people looked at IP of, uh, of uh, software. So uh, historically, people looked at the disk was the valuable part. We had to protect the disk. Um, I said, well, the disk is not valuable. It's the license key. Why don't we protect the license key? And we built a very big business managing license keys for all the big software companies and then the games companies, etc., which changed the way that they operate. Um, I spent a couple of years after that, or oh, during that period, as an honorary advisor to both the European Commission and the British government, um, also through the 2007 financial crash. Um, very interested in the future of work, very interested in education, very interested in growth and technology and how you create um, people that want to be entrepreneurial and be creative, etc., rather than just be very corporate. Okay, starting in um, 2012-13, I started investing in companies, um, co-founded a few, invested in others. And during that period, I heard about the blockchain in 2016, and 
found that a really fa- having had my background in both license digital license keys which is transferring value and derivatives found that really fascinating what technology could do for uh, financial assets and it spurred me to create a little unit called blockchain smokers everything in 2016 had a very cool name um, which was looking at how you create invest in very cool disruption um, I wanted to test it myself and um, created one of the most famous of the time um, tokenized companies called the Atari Token Project, which was the first ever metaverse project back in 2017 with the Ethereum foundings and a bunch of gaming legends and the iconic Atari brand. And then in 2019, having stepped down from that, um, I created Edenbase. And Edenbase is, is, follows that same thesis, which is you look for innovative companies, you understand where technology and trends are going, and you try and challenge the founders to see how their companies could be the boldest company that could be using these pivots and these technologies and if we see um real uh, appetite for that but also a real plan for delivering on that then we invest in those companies and that's sort of my background and how i got to where i am today thank you very much for that and you know elon musk uh said you know being a tech founder is like eating glass every single day um how would you describe how being a tech founder or a founder in general is because i feel that there is a huge misconception of what it actually takes to do what you've done um or any other tech founder um to what really has to be done and what somebody has to go through and be mentally prepared for so i would love to dig into your mind and uh share your perspective on that well i far be it for me to say that elon musk is doesn't have his own opinion and he he probably feels like that for me it wasn't like right. that um you know the founder is the person that has to do everything that everybody else doesn't want to do so there's a lot of that the founder is the person that has to take all the responsibility and the i told you so's and the this and the that and yes, it can be very hard, but it's also incredibly rewarding. You are master of your destiny. You know, I was not a good academic because I didn't like and didn't deal well with people telling me what to do and what I needed to learn and what I needed to deliver. I was better in corporate in innovation because I was able to do what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, in my first ever job, I had four desks because I was part of four teams because I said yes to everything. I wanted to do that. When I worked in the US for the bank, I fell into this role that allowed me incredible autonomy. It was a hard job. No one else wanted it. Nobody else probably could do it. Um, but you you have that. But when you move into entrepreneurial world, uh, along with the hard times, there are also the great times. There's the the enormous rewards for doing these things. There's the having a team that believes in you and believes in what you want to do and a lot of entrepreneurs are not, are not good managers they're not people people but they are good leaders and to have a bunch of people at some points you know companies i've run and built have been 85 90 people to have those people believing in what you're doing uh, believing to follow you into those things is phenomenal so i think it's the, the most rewarding thing and i would encourage anybody that feels they could do it to have a go. Um, I heard a brilliant analogy recently um, from somebody that I was on a pa- interviewing for, for a far side chat who said, being an entrepreneur, because he'd been an entrepreneur, moved to fund, I'm now, I run a fund. He said, being an entrepreneur is like the scene in Gladiator where you're in the tunnel 
and it's pitch black and you're suddenly ejected into the Colosseum and it's bright lights. You don't know what you're going on. You can't see properly. And there's a guy with an axe trying to chop your head off. And that is quite interesting as an analogy. I quite like that. But then he said the beauty, the great thing about being a fu- running a fund, having been an entrepreneur, is you're now sitting in the stands betting on who wins. Right. And I think that's a really good analogy. I take it one step further now. What I what because of what's going on in the world, this enormous acceleration with all these technologies. Actually, it's not like running out into a uh, a, a coliseum where someone might have an axe. Someone might have a lightsaber or a machine gun or a laser because technology is moving so fast so that is the the space we're in but also as as gruesome as that is that you know the the feeling of elation if you win a fight is 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 i can't imagine i mean i wouldn't i couldn't do that but um um, i can imagine it's enormous and and so there are enormous positives of being an entrepreneur and you can see that with elon musk you wouldn't do it he's worth even if he sold out and disappeared, he's, he does it because he loves it and he wants to create something. No, definitely. Uh, agreed. And um, yeah, in this modern day with all of these technologies, uh, uh, as you mentioned, and you never know what somebody else has. Say They could be armed with a lightsaber, which could be AI, or they could be un- uh, armed with a machine gun, which is uh, NFTs, so to speak. Um, however, you know, in this current technological revolution, how do you see technology shifting the way we work and live um again i i like to take uh, wisdom from people that said i we were on a we had an event here recently a learning circle on ai and one of the panelists um i won't say who it is yet because she hasn't let us use the quote i expect she will but she said we're reaching the stage where four people creating ai first um businesses and processes can take on a corporate and I think that's true. I think we're reaching this phenomenal stage where these technologies are becoming general purpose. Anybody can use them. You don't need to be a programmer anymore to program. You don't need to be a, um, a perfect um, author to write a business plan. You don't need to be a designer to write a, sprint, uh, a PowerPoint. And you can translate it into any language using these technologies. So, yes, I'm, I see... I see this phenomenal um, opportunity for everybody. I think it's in, I don't like the words as it happens. I think it's over years, but I see this sort of democratization and de- decentralization of businesses using these technologies. And I, I, I think the world is likely, if we do this right, to be a for not much, much more better place for many more people over the, over the coming decades. I agree. Um, and we see, you know, that we uh, the English language is now the largest programming language. So you don't need to be a programmer. And there are no code tools such as bubble.com. And what I've seen in the background is people are using ChatGPT and connecting it to no code tools like bubble.com and creating their own SaaS companies, which are being sold for, you know, half a million, a million uh, a month after they've they've built them. So, you know, this is pushing us into this digital revolution. Um, moving on to blockchain, you touched upon that a little bit. Now, how do you see the evolution of blockchain and cryptocurrency inspiring our society? That's a really good question. Um, so, yes, I've been in it. I have been in the space for a while since 2016. Um, blockchain is a really interesting tech, as I it was the thing that motivated me to really 
build what I'm building. Um, I'd been looking at AI in 2014, how I could invest in AI companies, and it was very difficult to really understand it. Blockchain, I found easier. Um, I think blockchain's problem is it's very much a solution looking for a problem. Um, you know, I always hear, we'll put it on the blockchain, why don't you blockchain it? And I say, well, if the, you know, why? And there's almost no, no cases which you can see where it makes sense. Um, however, blockchain is, and what it can deliver is, I think, an enabling step towards the AI future. So I look at six technologies. In fact, I've written a book on these six technologies, which are coming out soon by Wiley, called Unsupervised. And it talks about these six technologies, and I look at the top-level one, mainly because it's the head, and it's also the sort of pinnacle, and it covers everything as AI. But underneath that is quantum computing and blockchain. Quantum computing not quite here, blockchain very much here. And I see that underneath because those technologies allow AI to be better and to operate better than they currently do. But I also see it as a transient technology. I see as AI becomes more and more powerful, the value, not the use necessarily, but the value of blockchain in terms of it being a financial value diminishes. Um, crypto, I'm much more bearish on. You know, um, tokenization is a phenomenal. We can talk about, I, in fact, in the book, I talk about tokenization a lot. Now, not because it's so important to me, but because it's a complicated area and how, why it exists, what it does, the benefits of it, and how we've got to this stage. Unfortunately for me, a lot of what crypto does destroys the value of that token in terms of its operating value within the system that it's the technical system with which it's operated. So. I'm not. I'm more bearish on crypto, um, but tokenization of financial assets, um, so existing financial assets, tokenization of um, in-game assets. Um, I'm very positive on. I think the use of blockchain to deliver forms of trust in certain areas very valuable, and then finally, of course, with as I said, with the AI side to allow two or three AIs to deal with each other using a trusted source that we can agree. So you and I can agree what that trusted source is and have that trusted source in a, in a medium that they can access and be confident with, I think is very valuable. I see. Well, what do you mean that crypto, crypto uh, diminishes the value of what blockchain can offer? What a token! What a token! Blockchain. Sorry. So, the so most most um, tokens uh, came out of either a payment mechanism or a utility token within the platform, and for those to operate well, they have to be very liquid, and they have to be easily transferable, um, which is the basis behind blockchain so if i'm using the ethereum network and i've got to use gas then i need to use eth i've got to be able to get eth i've got to be able to use ETH. if i'm um a utility token within a within a blockchain where that token 
gives me some access to the platform or it gives me or it allows the platform to operate effectively again you want that token to be widely available to anybody so very very liquid and you want it to have no transaction costs at all as soon as you put you make that a financial instrument the costs are enormous because you have KYC, you have AML, you have all compliant matters, you have um, regulatory issues, you have um, geo geographical issues. So as soon as those tokens become a financial asset, I can't just transfer it to you. Because if I transfer it to you, I've transferred a financial asset, which gives me financial obligations. Who are you? What are you going to do with it? Do I know who you are? What is the tax implication for me? So let's say I buy, uh, let's say I buy an ETH for five hundred dollars, and I transfer it to you for three thousand dollars. I'm in effect there's a two and a half thousand dollar gate, you know, of input and export. That's a taxable event. If you're under eighteen or living in the US, I can't do that necessarily. Now they have to then abstract all those things away to say, well, actually it's not of this or it is of that or we're going to exclude regulation from this but that that's not how they should operate um and giving value there's a there was a panel i was on uh, was listening to recently where they were talking about this there, there's a there's a token i can't exactly remember the name I'll, I'll try and i could try and say it but i'll get it wrong but this token was given out by the ethereum foundation to people who wanted to test on the ethereum foundation and because they were giving it away for free, for free, it had, in effect, no value. Unfortunately, what somebody did is he, and I think he had a very good reason for doing this, he created an exchange in which you could buy and sell these tokens. And the reason he said that is it's not decentralized if I have to beg somebody who has these tokens to give it to me. That's good point. fully centralized. But, but what happened is as soon as he made an exchange, the price of the token went to, let's say, 2 or $3. So people were holding $2 million worth of this stuff who should have been giving it out. They couldn't then give it out because there was a taxable issue. So the whole thing fell apart and they've had to replace that token with something else. But that's a microcosm of the issue. You know, that is why that token had to have no value. And as soon as it does, it fails. And... Um, and it was very interesting to hear someone from the Ethereum Foundation being incredibly upset with this guy who'd created the exchange when everything else they do, you know, in terms of with ETH is exactly what they're doing in this, this field. So, you know, a lot of what is, a lot of what we have in the real world, and this is what technologists often forget, is not there to make my life, there's a lot of things that are there that make my life more difficult, but not all of them are created to make my life more difficult. They are created because they want to protect me or they want to <clears throat> have some sort of power base or they want to have rules or they are worried about the misuse of something. And things like real estate, things like the financial industry, the things like transport and all these health, these are critical infrastructures, so you can't just go in and say, you know, I'm going to change it all overnight. And if you don't fit into that wet, that model or you don't do something that is so different that it doesn't impact those models, which I think tokens used to do before they were a financial asset, um, 
you have a chart of, of succeeding right now thank you very much for that and still staying in the the broad topic is can you share some innovative ways nfts could be used beyond what they're being used for at the moment just in terms of pfps and art? well nft is another really interesting thing so um we did the first ever digital twin for a luxury fashion brand in april 2021 um one of the people who works with us did the first ever for, uh, charity NFT back in 2018. Um, so we've had a lot of experience in, in NFTs. But but it followed the normal, unfortunately, crypto hype cycle, which is we started our project in November 2020. Um, we wanted to do a luxury digital twin because it was an interesting thing to do for our learning process. And by the time February had come along, what was selling for 100 bucks the minimum price that anybody would be interested in selling one for was like $500,000. It was insane. And people were just flooding the market with this. Well, it was, uh, the way I described it back then, it was a a limited number of an unlimited amount of rubbish. You know, yeah, I can have a limited set of these videos, but there are limited videos I can release. I mean, it was just, it was, it was just insane. And, um, it unfortunately goes back to, as I said, this industry, which is it likes to profit off the hype cycle. And and it did, which is to a degree, as you've just rightly said, bucketed the whole NFT industry into, you know, dodgy art or you know, monkeys or whatever, bored apes, you know, which were selling for $3 million to Justin Bieber and now worth, if he's lucky, $10,000. Yeah. It, it, there's just no model behind it. Um, but that's a shame because the all an NFT is is a token that is not fungible. So if I have a an Ethereum token and I, you give me an Ethereum token and, I give, and you give me one back, we're the same. But if I give you a non-fungible token my non -fun and you give me a non-fungible token, we, we may have the same thing, but we're unlikely to. Yours might be um, the record for your 747 and might might be for a Learjet. They're not quite the same thing. And so that there is enormous value to that. To track things individually has value. Now in the financial industry, that could be incredibly important. You know, you have things like equities, one Apple share is the same as another Apple share. But if I had preference Apple shares, so there were class a b c shares to have and there were you know or um golden shares that had accelerated voting those could be very useful as as nfts loan notes where different elements of the loan had different repayment cycles um or where some of the um assets could be transferred internationally and some have to stay domestically those those are really fascinating. So I see I see if we move away from the the hype cycle of art and things that you could get a lot of PR behind, if you start doing it for things that are already exist and naturally fall into the that NFT bucket, they're, they're very they're very valuable. Time stamping things could be very useful of something that's very specific. Um, but but you also have to weigh it up against 
what is the difference between an NFT and just recording something to the blockchain um, in a, in a, in another way? So um, I think we've got a lot of learning to do in in that space. Um, I worry a little bit about that space. I mean, you can hear I'm not most positive about that space at the moment, which is a shame. Is the community itself that's building all their Web three, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are very um, focused on what they want to deliver. And a lot of people are using blockchain and in industry. Um, I mean, when I say a lot, it's not like AI, but there are more people than in the in the Web three space. But no one talks about that because it's not exciting. And so, um, I do really feel that if the NFT industry wants to become serious, it has to start solving real problems. And I don't think it's there yet. If we go one step further, and let me just uh, throw a curveball. Let's say they're solving a problem that needs to be solved, whatever it may be. Do we have the infrastructure to support scalability while still maintaining security? Well, that goes to the great question. Alice. That goes to the core of, of, of blockchain, which is the most secure mechanism is proof of work. Proof of work is incredibly energy inefficient and time consuming and expensive. The other solutions like proof of stake, <clears throat> proof of authority, there are, there are loads of them, um, are less secure, um, uh, but they're much faster. So at the moment, we're sacrificing security for speed. Um, now, I don't know how that's going to be solved. Um, I don't know. I'm not deep enough into the the technical side of it to understand where that where those might go. Um, clearly, you know, and that's another issue with the space, isn't it? The the people that believe in Bitcoin and proof of work think every should be, thing should be on the Bitcoin network. The people that believe in Ethereum proof of stake now believe the proof of stake should be the future. Um, I think the the final analysis, it'll probably be something different from all of that. Um, I think um, workable blockchains will probably come from left field um, and it will be something that we're not thinking about now um, because as, as we both agree, you know, it has, a, has an important part to play. Um, but at the moment, um, with our energy crisis and with um, the cost of compute power and more importantly, I think one of the things that the blockchain industry suffers from is they haven't yet after 15 years proved it themselves whereas ai has proved itself i mean it's been around longer but suddenly it's had that uh, eureka moment the ai just by putting an interface to on the on the, uh, on the front uh, a very easy usable interface um and the compute power required by ai is enormous and but the value for people adopting it and the, the asymmetric advantage they get from using it is enormous. So um, I, I think there's going to be some issues. I also think there's going to be issues with hardware. You know, NVIDIA chips are going to be, where's NVIDIA spending its time? It's not in blockchain, mm -hmm. it's on proof of work, it's in AI tech. That's why its share price has tripled or quadrupled. No, it's very interesting. And as all of these technologies converge, how do you envision the intersection of AI, blockchain, and quantum computing shaping our future and uh, one step further in terms of entrepreneurship? Um, another great question. Uh, we we only look at it, I mean, we, 
much. We we prefer intersections. So when we our fund doesn't look at AI <clears throat> exclusively, it doesn't look at quantum, it doesn't look at blockchain. It looks at the intersection of and there are three others that we look at. We look at always on communications, we look at immersive technologies, AR, VR, metaverse, whatever you want to call it. But having had the history we have, we look at it slightly differently and we see a different use case <clears throat> for it. And then we have what we used to call additive manufacturing, 3D, 4D printing, but call it more proximity-based manufacturing. So um, producing things customizable and discreetly locally. Um, be that, interestingly, be that on as a 3D, 4D printer or in metal or plastic or actually being on a on a cell. You know, could I, <clears throat> can I make a computer on a cell um, and then integrate it into my body using CRISPR. Those are sounds very far fetched, and in the future, but the head of CRISPR Labs at uh, Stanford apparently read up. Well, I know she read the book, and she said she's changing the way that she's delivering CRISPR from now on because of some of the things that she started to understand from the potential. Um, so, I just wanted to mention that because whilst you highlighted those three, which are very important, there are others. Um, but if you look at if we just stick to the question, which is AI, quantum, and blockchain, really interesting things for me would be um, tokenizing data, um, which makes it pseudonymous. And once it's pseudonymous, you can transfer it easily. So a lot of private data, bank data, uh, financial data is geolocated. You can't move it outside territories. If you add that sort of data tokenized to AI and quantum, you could do incredible matching. So we could match um, different stakeholders in the financial system that allows microfinance or better um, insurance policies or better loans, etc. Now, this is really at an early stage, and a lot of this will be very disruptive. So it's quite difficult to see where that might end up. But in the short term, I do see those adding those three together offering much better portfolio matching. So for instance, you know, the inflation rate in the UK is what, six and a half percent. I think that's what it is at the moment, or eight point two. I can't you know it's around those numbers. But that doesn't mean anything to me or you. Because your inflation rate and my inflation rate are completely different because you buy different things from me. You know, I'm I've got three kids, I go on holiday. The inflation rate of holidays and travel is like a hundred percent. It's just incredible what's going on. So my um, expectation of an inflation rate and what I need to deliver for my next 10 years is completely different from you, is completely different from other people. So saying 8% is meaningless. Me me trying to match an 8% inflation doesn't do much at the moment. But in two years' time, it might be completely different. I might have a negative inflation if the cost of the things I'm buying are falling. So... Technologies like AI, technologies like blockchain and tokenization where you can have trusted data, technologies like quantum, if you add those together, we can start doing customized inflation matching and financial service matching to individual people. And that is phenomenally empowering for people. But it also means that people that do not suffer inflation rates at the moment because they they live on they live in a different way from me also have a different financial profile which means their stability for having loans should be much greater than somebody without suffering a high inflation rate and that 
that often isn't accounted for. But that means that people that are excluded from the financial system might actually be the most attractive people to 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 offer loans to because their 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 business their their ability to repay the 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 loan is higher because their inflation rate and their earnings are slightly greater than their inflation rate. And and I think when we start looking at how technology can impact those sort of things, or for instance, if you could tokenize assets in some sort of way that you could offer direct by micro loans to people in let's say Africa or India or wherever you wanted to do it. And that mechanism was completely automated so it could operate and you had a much better because AI could do the due diligence on those people so the money would come back um or really cool things i mean i remember once i there was a a woman i used to work with and she ended up in la once um and she had no money on her um and she had uh no money to and i said you can't walk around la without any money in your pocket so i gave her 500 dollars. i said you know it's just not sensible to be without a bank account and whatever and I said, I don't want the $500 back. What I want you to do with that $500 is give it to somebody. When you can afford to pay it back, give it to somebody else. And she did. She went to Coney. She gave she gave it to a mother of a single child in New York to go to Coney Island for the day. I think she only gave $250. But, but your loan that you give to somebody in so-and-so, that loan using these great technologies and tokenization and AI and quantum could actually move around and you could be benefiting a chain of people. And and again, those are the type of things that I think are so empowering with these with these technologies, and they will come. Uh, all of these things will come. But you just can't see when and and how they're going to arise. I mean, you touched upon many great things there, and uh, it's just a testament to the way your mind works. <laughs> I've seen uh, I, I've seen you speak in reality and challenge. Uh, you know, even the simplest of ideas, let alone the most complicated ones. But throwing something back is, if we were to build something like that, let's say using the UK as an example, do you think there would be a lot of red tape to jump through and hoops to jump through before we can get to a stage where implementation can be uh, streamlined? Um, Not a phenomenally deep and good question. Um, It goes back to so many things, this. Firstly, People don't. People talk love to talk about change, but they don't like change. That's the first thing. The second thing is changing what an existing structure, rather than adding something new, is much more difficult. So, for some of the great things about the internet is Google search. You know, Amazon putting books online was something new. You know, it didn't have to worry about competing with the regulations of on stores and et cetera, et cetera, something new. Then Google could come along with searching because searching was really important for e-commerce and the information and create something new. You know, it was unregulated space. And then Facebook came along and Facebook was not regulated because it was a, a social media network not competing with them. But when you're saying the opposite, which is, and derivatives too, very interestingly, derivatives was not regulated initially because it was not competing with it didn't fall under the existing regulations because it wasn't competing with anything it, there were certain regulations it has to uh, operate under because it operates in the uk or the us so when you start 
impacting existing um, industry and the way they operate, then you get the regulations. So, you know, like um, if you're going to say like crypto does, we're going to become, Bitcoin is going to become the global reserve currency. Well, immediately you're impacting the the entire financial system and the dollar and the yen the one and all these and the euro and the pound then you get into these heavily regulated areas and the reason they're regulated is for two reasons the first is to ensure safety security and trust so if you look at a very simple example look at the taxi service in the uk the cabs they re- you, every driver has to be licensed. Why? Because you want to get into a car that you know he's licensed, you know who he is, you know he's had a background check, you know the car's maintained, etc. And that was a very good thing. But the other side of it is it limits the players. So as soon as you have enough of people that operate in a certain way, they want the regulation because they're pro- they create a monopoly through regulation, which is why Uber came in with something completely new. But have to fit into the eventually those regulations so we we've also got to look at regulations as a way of maintaining market dominance it's really fascinating how quickly the ai companies in the us have suddenly said we want regulation and we'll help you write it why do they want to do that it's because they've got a market lead at the moment and if they can write into the regulations what they do it means that other people with better technologies and from with different solutions will find it very difficult to break it but this makes life really difficult because what then happens is you get disruption rather than a a planned change you get a, a cliff edge a, a good ex- a, a, a good example might be let's say driverless trains so driverless trains you could easily have technology driving a train you know, exist today. If you can get, a, if you've got all these cars driving around San Francisco without drivers, you can certainly do it on a track with a station. What's unfortunately happening is, in, for the drivers, is instead of accepting that and working with it and saying, okay, we're going to retrain, we're going to be, um, <clears throat> we're going to be a more sophisticated driver, we're going to monitor it, etc., etc., and our job will slowly disappear over a fifteen-year period. They're saying you can't have driverless trains at all. What then happens is suddenly it comes in because it has to come in for some reason and um they lose their jobs really really quickly now that's not a perfect example because it's a monopoly a government monopoly so it's more difficult but but you have it with disruptive text it's like kodak kodak said well no one's going to dominate no digital camera is ever going to be as good as a kodak it's not going to give you the experience of blah, blah blah yeah to a degree that's true but it didn't matter eventually they disappear and the and suddenly you have 20,000 people out of work as the company goes bankrupt rather than over a 5 year period or 20 year period they lose a thousand a year or 2000 a year which is a very or they retrain or kodak retrains so i actually see regulation with these new technologies as a serious problem and i see what the eu is doing as a serious problem the serious eu AI companies are not going to locate themselves within the EU because of these rules, but also the EU are going to have to adopt to these techno- adapt to these technologies and adopt them because they're going to be they're going to come eventually. So, what I prefer is actually something sort of more vague, which is supervision. And what I mean by supervision is we all need to be involved, and 
whether you're a, if you're a, a pr- Prime Minister Sunak, you can be involved more. If you're a, if you're a minister, you can be involved. I'm talking about UK, for instance. If you're a CEO of a company, you've got more influence. If you're a newscaster, etc., you've got more influence. But whoever you are, we're all the users of these technologies. If I'm if I have my kids at school, I can be going to the head the headmaster or headmistress of the school and saying, "What are you doing about these technologies? How are you educating my kids? How are you ensuring that?" Firstly, they understand that these technologies are behaviorally changing them, but also that what they put into them has an impact on what they get out of them. How are we dealing with that? How are you training them? Each of those things, as it moves forward, has enormous benefits to the to the way that these products are developed. And I would really encourage everybody to move towards this feeling. It's our responsibility to make sure these technologies are delivered properly rather than saying well it's up to it's up to the government and the regulators to do it for us because they're unlikely to have a positive impact right no thank you very much for that um moving on to the metaverse and digital twins uh, how do you see the concepts of digital twins and the metaverse impacting our daily lives and also on the creators creator economy side as well well Interestingly, my background, as we discussed, was um, you know the Atari token, which was uh, the first well, really big metaverse company, and um, so I've, I've explored this a lot. Um, I also spent a lot of time uh, when I did the work for the European Commissioners, kind of I was an advisor <coughs> um, <coughs> to them, thinking about the future of work, and there is an element of that. Um, which is really powerful, this ability to become a creator or uh, an operator or uh, make yourself, uh, give yourself a living in a in a virtual world. And I think that's a, a very powerful thing. The problem with that is it's a Im- really big ask. And I remember when we did the Atari token and we looked at a lot of play-to-earn products um, and what they were trying to offer, it's such a small element of what needs to be delivered to make this work. Um, the Atari t- token was, as I said, was, was uh, designed and helped build by an Ethereum founder, a bunch of gaming legends who'd been in the industry for 30 years by then. Um, some guys, the Atari token, which gave it enormous cachet. And people that really understood the technologies and behavior of people. And so the to build a metaverse of what you're like you're talking about that can allow the creator economy, I think is a very large undertaking. Um, and my guess at the moment is it will come out of the likes of Epic and the Unreal Engine and people building on those sort of technologies and the big gaming companies um, rather than the Web3 space because it's very much something you need to attract people to want to be in rather than pay them to be in there. So the play-to-earn systems was all around, I'll give you money if you come in. It's made up money because I've made my token, but I'll give you money to play my game. And obviously, if there's no economy that's taking that money out of the system and buying it, then the economy fails. So on that side of it, I do see some really interesting things. I do see as these technologies start impacting our life in the in the real world and taking and moving jobs from current jobs to future jobs, which may or may not be suitable for many, some people, many people, all people. <laughs> Take your guess at the moment. I don't know where that's going to end up. Certainly, I suspect eventually it's all people, but that might be a hundred years away, it might be ten years away. Um, 
these sort of immersive worlds are really useful. However, that's not where I see the real interest now for those for the digital twins and the immersive technologies. And it's something that I've been thinking about more recently, which is for AI and quantum. The beauty of the interesting thing, I'm going to uh, um, have a little segue here, but the beauty of quantum is not this that it can break, crack the codes, etc., which it probably will do eventually. It's that our world is a quantum physical world. We live in a quantum physical world. It's probabilistic. I always joke, I can press my skin. There's a probability that my finger will go through it because everything is just probabilistic. It obviously never happens, but you know there is a, a chance of anything happening that we're, we're here and we're not here. The thing that we've been doing for the last 70, 80 years is we've been turning a, phys- a quantum world into a binary world for a digital computer taking a quantum computer you can actually model the world perfectly because it's quantum so we can probabilistically model the real world so where does that come into the immersive web you're going to ask me and the immersive land is if i attach an ai to a quantum which is going to happen soon um and then i take a digital immersive item like London, let's say. Imagine I had a digital version of London with all the sewers, with all the electricity, with all the roads, with all the buildings, and you unleash AI and quantum on that and say, solve the energy problem. It'll be able to do it, potentially. I mean, eventually it will. and say, if you reroute this and you do this and you do that, and it'll come up with answers that humans never think of. It says, solve the traffic problems or whatever the the question is the problem with the computer is then it has to tell you what to do and so firstly the immersive world it needs to see what it's dealing with because if you type this is what london's like and they've got buildings and they you can't do it you have to do it immersively um as a very simple example let's say you wanted to change you had a fiat 500 you wanted to change the tire on it and you said i can't undo the nut the only way it can do it is to look up online and go, oh, wait a minute, you know, the Fiat 500 has five nuts. I've looked at the manual, blah, blah, blah. You need to look at the fifth nut. Oh, I don't know. But if it had a model of the of Fiat 500, a perfect rendition of it as a twin, it could actually look into it. It could see where the nut is. It could see, it could, you could, it could visually see what you were doing because you were immersively dealing with it and it could see that you couldn't unscrew it and it could give you solutions. The other side is when you get to the very complex, like how do you solve the energy in London? How is it going to tell us? The only way it can tell us is visually because it's going to be so, you know, it could write a 50,000 page, you know, answer on it, you know, that you'd have to follow all the instructions. Or it could say, look, if you rerouted it this way, you did this, or you turn off these buildings at 6 p.m. because they're empty. And then you say, wait a minute, we can't turn off those buildings at 6 p.m. because. The, that is that building is is the flight path uh, towards Heathrow, and the light on top is the, the AI doesn't know. You can see those ways you wouldn't see it buried into a fifty thousand page document. You just turn the building off. So that's where I see these immersive worlds being so phenomenal. It's actually the interface between AI, quantum, and these immersive technologies um, and the real world. And then when you add always on comms. Um, 3d or additive manufacturing you could actually say if you had a digital twin of your body Anas, and he said 
and it and it could understand something's going wrong because it can see that the blood flow across it is just unusual. It comes up with a solution no one could come, but it could actually say, "Wait a minute, you have a a broken femur, and I will make you a new femur because it's never going to repair." And then you have one made at the local hospital. That is where these th- thing I think the immersive world becomes so important that it can actually see what it's built because you can. It can it can interface with the physical. I don't think people talk about that much because I don't. But I really find that fascinating. It is certainly fascinating, and I'm I'm mind blown at the moment to you know what you've just mentioned and the prospects for the future as well. Um, on the other side, now from a perspective of social media, uh, Twitter, you know, transitioning to X and being this all in one app, and in terms of censorship. Where do you see digital ownership and identity and also censorship in these major platforms and also a new opportunity for new platforms to emerge within the midst of these murky waters? Of all the questions so far, that's the hardest. Right. (laughs) So, um, um, look, it's, this is an impossibility. Mm -hmm. You know, we are living in a world where everything's digitized. The fact that we think that it's not going to be digitized or that a government really cares whether I turn my data off and said you can't use it if they need it for national national security or whatever their latest gimmick is that they want to nudge us towards um, is, is just crazy. You know, it's going to happen. And by saying, well, we're going to put it on the blockchain and I'm going to own my own data, and, you know, as much as Facebook and Twitter may listen to me and be, I can sue them if they don't. Firstly, I'll never know. Secondly, they're not the problem. The problem are the governments and the security services and the police and the bureaucrats who don't have to obey any GDPR laws. They're exempted from everything. It's not going to happen. So the more digitized we become, the more um, this is a serious problem. Um <clears throat> Then you have the second element of that, which is not only do they have the access to your information, they can then use that information to perfectly manipulate you because they know everything about you. And these technologies are highly manipulative. You know, they're they're you know, there's the theory that the election was stolen and all this. On the whole. And Brexit was lost because they, on the whole, the, what I've understood, that didn't really happen. You know, it's a nice thing to, to, to excuse it. But the daily nudging in terms of how they're feeding you information on a micro level to make you behave in a certain way, whether it's a social media platform or whether it's the government or whether it's anything, I think is a, is a trend we're on. And, and how we deal with that is we all, again, sounds so trite, but we have to all care. We all have to say, no, this, you can't just do this. If you do this, we're going to vote you out of power. We're going to get new people in. We, we want oversight. We, we, fought. There's a, we take them to, to court, those type of things, because that is the only way to do it. And I don't know the answers. My book is not a is not an answer book. It's a call to action. It says, these are the problems. These are the benefits. <clears throat> I don't know what you're like. I haven't had your upbringing. I don't know what's important to you. I know I can try and guess, 
but that's what the web three people do. They say we can unbank the unbanked. I say bang the unbanked. I said, have you ever met an unbanked person? No, <clears throat> but I know what it's like. I said, well, I've never met one, but I'm pretty sure I don't know what it's like to be an African child who has to walk for ten miles a day to get water. And I'm not sure that giving him a crypto wallet is going to solve his problems tomorrow. But you know, but if they tell us what the problem is, so. And that's a very extreme example. But even people that live in my road have different views from me. People that live five miles away from me have completely different issues and, and different considerations. And so that is why this pro- question is so difficult to answer. It, it's, it's inevitable. It's happening today. It's going to be worse. And it, the, 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 idea, the, the two trends that are happening which is firstly that they can replicate people perfectly almost now. I think there's a, well, I know there's a system called Valley by Microsoft. They haven't released it, that they need three seconds of your voice and they can perfectly replicate your voice. Um, There are systems out there that can probably make a pretty good replica of me. I mean, Tom Cruise, they can do him and everyone knows what he looks like. Most people don't know what I look like, you know, so it's easier for me, even if it's got a few defects or maybe better than me it might be an improvement but people don't know what i look like so those things are going to become more and more problematic then you go to the whole fake news thing and fake news and only in your own data and all this sort of stuff is it's just so far away from the world i live in which is what is news if you turn on a tv station or a read a paper or read a tweet where there's an actual data point that just says the data is inflation rate is 8.2%. The temperature in Europe is 32 degrees. No, you don't get that. You get a red 32 degrees with, oh my God, the world is burning up on Sky and BBC. And then on some other channel, you have 32 degrees is actually cold. Neither the data is the same, but it's the it's the way that the, the news is, the, the information is imparted. You know, I could have just said what I just said in a very boring, because I get very passionate about things, in a very boring way, and it would sound completely different. And so it's not, what is actually the news? What is actually the data source? And how do you protect that? Um, I can see if you if you have a world where Biden gives a speech, and you're really, really worried that people are going to manipulate it and pretend he said something completely different. That, that, that putting that in a trusted source that you can't manipulate as long as everybody knows about it so they can go back to the trusted source. But if it's a fact like UK inflation is 8.2%, that's not really helpful for people without context, and the context is always manipulated or changed. And so if I read The Guardian and I read The Daily Mail about the same incident, both using exactly the same fact, I will likely think something completely different happened. And so I don't, you know... Fake news and opinion and valid opinion, uh, rational opinion and irrational opinion, where do you draw the line? Because I don't know. And then you look at, you know, incredible, you know, incidences like during COVID when people said, I don't want the vaccine because I don't think it's been tested properly. And they were considered cranks and they, you know, Piers Morgan said they should be locked up in a minute. And now they admit that the the vaccine hadn't been tested properly because it, it wasn't now. Whether they should have had it or shouldn't doesn't matter. The point is, you cannot, just because something is told to you in a certain way by everybody, doesn't necessarily mean that the 
inference and step two of what they're saying is correct. So whether the vaccine was tested or not doesn't mean it's dangerous for you. I don't know the answer to that. But the fact that it's not tested is not necessarily the valid point of this. The valid point is, is it dangerous for you? And that's what people are asking. And just to finish on this, with Anna, so with my concept thing about quantum computing that I find so fascinating is as humans are going binary, we want a yes and no answer to everything. I want to just go on the internet and say, is this right? Yes, no. I don't want to read anything. I don't have any attention. Computers are going quantum, where they're going from yes and no's to 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 being in probabilistic mode. And so, um, you know, do your own research is always the funniest statement ever because nobody wants the research. They just want to hear what you, you say. Uh, yeah, I think you should do this, but do your own research. Okay, I'm going to do this because you said so. But I've got the option to do it. No, definitely. Um, very interesting. I wanted to dive into, you know, there was one thing floating in my mind as you were saying all of this was CBDCs, CBDCs, uh, programmable money. Um, quickly, because I want to touch upon your book, I am conscious on time. Um, what do you think about CBDCs and programmable money? Look, I've been arguing against CBDCs for many years. I mean, since 20, at least 2019. Um it's one of Eric, one of my partners here. He's very pro CBDC, or he used to be. Um, whereas I was neg- very negative. And the reason I'm so negative is actually nothing specific, because I, I don't know how it's going to be used. I don't know what's going to be. Used. But the unintended consequences of it going wrong and being misused are too great, in my opinion, for the value that it's going to deliver. And it's a centralized system. We know governments make mistakes. We know they hold grudge. People within government hold grudges. They just deep, especially with what happened with Nigel Farage. You know, if a bank can debank him, what happens when a government debanks you? Because they decide they don't like your view on climate change. Now, they'll say, well, that'll never happen, but never say never. So, no. And, and, the the other reason that I'm, you know, it sounds a bit little farcical, but the reason I'm dedicated is who's the furthest advance with it? China. And China is not the biggest democracy in the history of the world. And it's not something I think we should follow. And one of the arguments for CBDC is, well, if China have a CBDC, then they're going to be the reserve currency and we've got to keep up. But that's even further from truth. They said, and they, you know, the argument I'm given actually by Eric a lot, well, if I do a deal with China, then I'm going to be forced to take a, a CBDC. I said, well, I'm not going to keep a CBDC because it's bad enough having a, the, the local currency that I can put in my bank and chain, you know, they can't take that off me. But if I've done a deal with them for $10 million of yuan and they decide they don't like that deal anymore, they press a button. So the chance of me holding that digital currency for more than a millionth of a second or as fast as I can get rid of it is zero. But who's going to take the digital one from me and give me another currency? Nobody, because they don't want the risk. So actually, I see the the risks enormously huge, and the benefits, whilst there are enormous benefits, do not merit it until it's seriously been considered and it's been tested. And someone said on a panel I was once on, and I really listened to this, which is, it's not for the government to play to run experiments 
It's for private companies and startups to run experiments. And if they work, then the government could try it. So that you wouldn't do this with the NHS. They wouldn't say, okay, we're going to put in robot surgeons tomorrow because they're they prefer, you know, what if they all go wrong and we've got no surgeons left? No, you wouldn't do that. But they think they can get away with it here. And I, I, I think it's a big error. No, definitely. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and thank you for giving a logical answer and staying away from all conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, I would like to touch upon your book. Please tell me about your book, what it's about and where people could find it. Oh, um, so my book's called Unsupervised. It's published by Wiley. It comes out on September the 13th. So the, the premise of the book is that um, there are these number of technologies. <clears throat> they are, this is what they do. So it's aimed at, it's aimed at a, a relatively well, you know, an A-level type person or above that sort of understands these technologies but doesn't understand all of them or even any of them. And it tries to give them a, an understanding of that first not in a very technical way but in a and so my co-author is a very well-educated fund manager retired many years ago and he didn't understand them so we brought it up to where he at least can get to a level and then what it says is these in every in area like from uh, our economy to our government structures to our education systems to control to communication etc these are the enormous benefits of these technologies are but these are also the downsides <clears throat> and more importantly the reason it's come unsupervised is these technologies are building themselves now so they're 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 operating under their own system, the guidance because they're too big for us but also there are a number of people around the world and we list a number of them who understand extremely well the power of these technologies and no one is monitoring them and nobody is trying to do anything. Well, they're trying to do, but not effectively. And the only way that we can deal with this is for everybody to become engaged, or as many people as possible to become engaged. And that's why I call this guys. And it's a call to action. It says, when you understand how um, important these technologies are, you will really want to get um, understand, uh, get involved, because it, you can't leave it to other people, and you can't leave it any longer. Um, and the reaction has been, you know, during the drafting process, we sent it to a lot of people from, you know, one of my colleagues that I work with here, Marta, who I jokingly say was head of the head of security for the Bitcoin network, I mean, she was a box street and she's a cybersecurity person, um, all the way to people that were at, Sta at Stanford CRISPR labs, to CEOs of big companies, to people that are building technology. <clears throat> and almost all of them have not only read it and some in some cases read it twice but understand how important and timely is and that we cannot wait any longer and we have to do something and also which is a very big passion of mine which is it's not up to any of us to dictate the future for other people it's up to those people to dictate the future for themselves and unless they get involved and leave it to other people to to dictate the future that it's unlikely to be a future they want and the really important thing about this is it's not like the industrial revolution the industrial revolution allowed was was replicating and bettering our physical skills they weren't creating robots that was change the way that we operate or fight us <clears throat> 
This is not an industrial revolution 4.0. This is a cognitive revolution, which means two things are happening. One, they're taking away our brain functions and what we do. And they are doing it really fast and they are dedicated to doing that. So teams in in these companies are working to replace lawyers, they're working to replace coders, they're working to replace journalists. They're actively trying to do that. The second thing is these technologies change our behavior. We can see that with social media. They are trained to hook us to these technologies. And by hooking us, they have to work through fear or greed. And working on the fear or greed basis is very damaging to us, which is why we have these incredibly high suicide rates and we have this depression because of these technologies because they are manipulating us. And if you consider, Anas, that these technologies we're building today are like little babies lying in a crib, the technologies we're just launching are the crawlers. In two or three years' time, we're going to be doing the toddlers, then we're going to be doing the teenagers, and then we're going to be doing the teenagers. And by 2030 to 2040, we are going to be unleashing the possibly the most beneficial thing we have ever seen for humanity, but also on the flip side, the most dangerous thing we've ever seen for humanity. And we can't just let it go on. No, I agree. Um and although there are multiple other questions I had and wanted to dive into, I believe this is uh, one of many podcasts to come. Um, I wanted to ask you one final question. If you had to give your last 30 seconds speech to the world, what would it be? Oh, wow. Technology has given us the best decade we've ever had. It's improved longevity. It's improved health. Um, it's improved um, education. It's improving democracy in those countries which have democracy. Um, and there is a serious potential that the technologies we're delivering today will continue that trend. Um, but it's very risky to allow it to continue without ensuring that that is the future that you want. And even if it's the future that is beneficial for humanity, as we can see around the world, just because life is better for two billion people, it's probably worse for a billion, you know, in, in different places. So let's get involved and be part of the game. If you're if you're not going to be part of it, um, it's not I heard a brilliant quote the other day, it's not your obligation to become a genius but it is your obligation to take part. And we're halfway through this the planet. It's 2 billion years old, and we've got another 2 billion, I think, to go. You know, humans can be a phenomenal and amazing species that we will continue to evolve, etc. Um, so it's our responsibility to make sure that our next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that have the best foundations we can leave them. Is there, would you like a, a last part to, to, to add any other comments that you want? Do you, do you feel that we've missed anything? I mean, look, there's so much more you can kind talk of. about in this. But, but, but the questions you asked were very good. They, the last one is clearly very, very hard. It's 30 seconds yeah. to, to your final statement. Um, and there's so much to say. And as you can see, I talk a lot. But no, you covered, you you covered the the grounds. A lot of them made me think hard. Um, it, I mean, I think I know the stuff. It's just how to phrase it in a way that makes sense. It's very easy, as you said. I mean, I've had these without mentioning conspiracy theories. 
Um, it's very easy to become conspiratorial and say everyone's out to get me. Um, there are people that are out to get you, but I don't think it's... I, I, I worry incompetence is greater than uh, malevolence um, in the world. Um, and unintended consequences are... Which is why CBDC and a lot of what's going on in the crypto industry is so important. You know, the only other thing is, you know, I said this in a speech recently, individuals adapt slowly, structures resist and break. And we don't want to be breaking systems. We don't want, I heard a, a very famous Silicon Valley guy recently said, I'm a tech guy, I like, I like breaking things. And that's the last thing we want to do. Mm. You know, you don't, you know, bureaucracies are set up to slow down breaking. You know, it might not be a perfect world in the UK. It might not be perfect in the US. It might not be perfect in Europe, but it's better than most other places. And we certainly don't want to play games with, with that because it's very easy for it to go spiraling out of control. And, and I think you covered a lot of that. I mean, not in that specific way, but that, that's very important to me. And, and whilst I, love disruption i love innovation it's what i think about it's my vision i'm also very conscious that people are we are people and we are living in a great period a lot of us in a great you know we live in the uk got its problems but i wouldn't w really want to be in many other countries at many other times in history um because it's it we live well and it would be nice if the rest of the world moved up but even that's complicated and you know why have we got inflation here? Because wages are going up. Why are wages going up? Because we've got leveling up. People in lower incomes are earning more money now. That was leveling up. That's what the government said we want to do. We want people to earn more money. But as soon as they do, it hits inflation numbers, and that's a terrible thing. So you can't pay people more. So everything has a, has a reaction. You can't just say, we're going to do this or we're going to do that and expect everything to be fine. Um, and, inf and and some of those consequences are worse than the doing nothing at all. And so I really need, you. people need to think, am I doing something, have I thought through, the, we build this community Eden base, we invest in companies that we think are going to do good things, but realize they may do awful things. So through a community approach and something we call smart challenge, where or respectful challenge, but smart challenge, where we can go up to people, founders, or our community can and say, you know, what are you delivering today? Is, are you sure? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And, you know, not just give them a wad of money and say, build whatever you can and break everything and, and, and disrupt. No, that's, that's really not a world I want to live in. No, I totally agree. Well, th thank you very much for sharing your insight. You. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on Creators Code, and definitely this will be one of many. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You too.